A quote from Martha Graham in a conversation with Agnes DeMille. Quote, I confess that I had a burning desire to be excellent, but no faith that I could be. Martha said to me very quietly, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep yourself open and aware to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. As for you, Agnes, you have so far used about one third of your talent. But, I said, When I see my work, I take for granted what other people value in it. I see only its ineptitude, inorganic flaws, and crudities. I am not pleased or satisfied. No artist is pleased. But then there is no satisfaction. No satisfaction whatever at any time, Martha cried out. There is only a divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. This is Becoming Human, and we're here to discover the world more fully so that we can better traverse it, and my hope is just to facilitate the process. I'm not an expert, really, in anything, but I am very curious, and I'm obsessed with discovering things, and I think that we can have an intentional approach to live an ethical life, and I'm willing to use anything I can get my hands on. And so today, we're going to talk about change and how we should orient our lives if change is possible at all. And that's where we'll start. And over the next few episodes, we'll eventually get to how do we change, what gets in the way of change, and like what's the practical process for how this works. But today, we just need to see, can we change? So let's learn, let's grow, let's become a little bit more human. I want to begin with a question, and again, I'd, I'd love to be able to uh, answer some of your questions if you think it's necessary. If I can help you understand more who you're listening to, I'd love to do that. Uh, but the question I just want you to ponder as we begin is, have you changed in your life? Have you changed anything? And if you have, which I'm guessing that you'll answer yes in some way, What was that change like? So consider a way that you're different now than you were before. What happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? What was it like? Now, in our opening installment on philosophy and ethics, the examined life and how they're dance partners, we made the claim that whoever you are becoming, it will happen by intentionally understanding the world and then intentionally applying that understanding. So there's this relationship between theory and practice, philosophy and ethics, they're dance partners, all right? But if 
you don't balance them, if you're not intentional about both, you are likely to drift towards a worse possibility. So that's something that we brought up. But I think that's going to become really important as we begin this conversation on change. Because whatever you're learning and whatever you're taking in is going to affect your behavior. And so you have to consider diligently what is consuming your mind. But more importantly, how do you move whatever you're consuming and bringing in from your head to your hands? How can you have a sort of incarnational learning? So the reason that you need to constantly explore and be curious and then practically apply that understanding is because it is determining who you are becoming in every single moment. And if you're not intentional about what you're bringing in and how it's affecting you, well, you're still intaking information all the time. And we have to be careful about this. But before we address that issue, I want to ask a question about something I just implied and possibly assumed. I said it determines who you are becoming. But can you even become something? So again, the issue of paying attention is going to come up. And again, intentional or drifting is going to come up as well. But let's dive into some of the intellectual and possibly abstract frameworks that have shaped this conversation over time. Consider this like a uh, very limited literature review. And uh, some of you, you may be like, this is so not interesting to me. Stay with me. This is, this is sort of like a boring part of a drive. Like if you've ever driven through Colorado and you get to Colorado and you're like, where's the mountains? And it's just like plains for a while. You have to endure that part of the drive and then you'll see the mountains on the horizon. So let's, let's work through this and remember the intellectual side, the philosophical side, that information, it's helpful if we do something with it. So I'm guessing that if I ask the question, is change possible? We assume that yes, it is. I, I think most people in our culture would say yes, change, change is a real thing. But how has this topic been thought about over time? And, and what can we learn from those conversations? Because the idea of change has not been agreed upon throughout history. In fact, this conversation is the basis of one of the largest debates in philosophy that still happens today. So let me tell you about, uh, we'll start with three folks, uh, Democritus, Parmenides, and Empedocles. These ancient philosophers, they're all what's called pre-Socratic, so before Socrates. And they're discussing this problematic reality. And, and again, hey, this is a long time ago. So you're going to notice some things where you're like, I'm pretty sure we've disproven that or that just seems kind of primitive and barbaric. Yeah, it was a long time ago. But there's some validity to this. So let's start with Democritus. He was one of the first people to talk about atoms. And listen, he was way off about atoms. But it's still impressive that, you know, we're talking like 600, 500 BCE, and he was talking about atoms. Now, the thing that's important about uh, Democritus is that he's offering a materialist account of the world. So most of the world existed this like supernatural mythology with a bunch of demiurges and pantheons and things. And, and he was taking the perspective that that actually might not be correct, which 
you know, that, I think he was right about that. But he has this quote that, you know, any, if you're reading a philosophy book and they're talking about the pre-Socratics, I bet you they have this quote or some variant of it. It goes like this. By convention sweet, by convention bitter, by convention hot, by convention cold, by convention color, but in reality, atoms and void. Now, it just has a nice lyrical poetry to it. But what is he saying? What he's saying is that something cannot come from nothing. And the world is unchanging. And it's unchanging material principles that are just rearranging themselves to get the appearance of change. So something seems sweet, or it seems bitter, or it seems hot, or it seems cold. But really, all this is, is material atoms rearranging themselves to make things appear the way they are. The reason that he takes this approach is for uh, Democritus, which again, he's kind of rebelling against the dominant uh, uh, culture of his day, that without something coming from nothing, change is impossible and illusory. And objects, they might come and go, but they're made up of atoms that are ungenerated and indestructible so therefore, nothing actually changes. Okay, lots of debate that we could have about that. But that's the first person. Now, second, Parmenides. Now, Parmenides says, if something actually changed, it would have to go from what it is to what it is not. And since you cannot speak of what is not, therefore, change is possible. So, what is not is not actually real. So therefore... Nothing could change because it would have to go from what it is to what it is not. What he's trying to make a case for is that nothing in the universe is moving. In fact, the universe is one unchanging mass. And so therefore, nothing is actually happening here. It's all just an illusion. Now, uh, Empedocles kind of comes alongside of and after Parmenides. uh, And Empedocles wanted to make more sense with reality and this idea of materialist unchanging perspectives. Um, so Empedocles offers that atom shift, right? So you have the basic materials of air, water, fire, and earth, and they're all just intermingling. And what we call change is just the constructs of different assemblies of unchanging things. So therefore change is still an illusion, but some kind of changes happen. He was trying to like, you know, be a middle road within all of this. Now, let's jump forward to more famous people, Plato and Aristotle. They actually said similar things, and they had various uh, uh, tracks that they went on with this. But they also kind of come to the conclusion that change is kind of illusory, or that change is just accidental, because reality is timeless and based on permanent substances. So there's no process. It's important to see that Plato and Aristotle specifically, but all of these people, they're trying to make a case for this because they're trying to hold uphold something else that they think is really important. For Plato and Aristotle, the sort of timelessness, universalness of uh, the world and, and having these permanent substances were really important. And so therefore they had to say, well, there's, there's no change. There's no process. Right? So they even said, like, you might become sick, but you're still the same person, right? Um, and that was simply important for them to be able to articulate. 
So before you just start throwing all of this out, just think about the ramifications of this. Because, yeah, it kind of sounds ridiculous. And there seems to be some bad science and some bad uh, rationalism behind it. But it's important. Remember, they're concerned about ethics. And if change is real, and this is the biggest issue for them, if change is real, then you can never fully achieve knowledge of everything. And they not only thought that you could, they were so hopeful that you could. That was incredibly important to them. But if everything is constantly changing, well, then how can we fully arrive at these absolutes and these ideal forms? So change was a problem for them. The other thing that uh, they're, they're trying to confront is that your senses deceive you, right? Reason and logic were important because your sense observations, your empiricism, your finitude, it's fallible. And so they really promoted deductive reasoning, reasoning, right? Arguing from a premise to come to a conclusion because the conclusions then were based on reason and they were superior to your flawed evidence and experience. So that's really important to consider too. I think we live in a culture right now that super elevates uh, the the individual experience and sense observations. And obviously uh, the scientific revolution helped bolster the role of empiricism in, in understanding the world. And I still think that's really important. But they were trying to say, no, we can't rely on this stuff around us uh, and so there has to be these like ideal forms and these absolutes and, and these things that we can achieve through reason and logic. Uh, and so therefore they kind of had to be against change because uh, change would imply that those things don't fully exist in some way, at least ontologically and epistemologically. I know it, it, it gets a way more confusing the more you get into this debate. Again, we're just trying to set the stage here for something else. Um, but another thing that I think is really important about this conversation is that all of these philosophers that we just mentioned, I think they would be against crush it culture. And what I mean by that is the sort of like super successful, productive, accomplishment driven culture that we have today, because that culture is built on change. And by saying that change is illusory, They are diminishing human power, and it emphasizes the transcendent, right? There is a great ultimate reality that is perfect and eternal, and you, as a finite human being, well, you're not going to do anything to make an impact on that. Uh, So I think that's actually something that our culture could use is like, hey, let's put ourselves in our place a little bit, Um, and that comes with their understanding that, you know, change, uh, change is not real. Another thing that comes up with this, though, and I kind of like this. I I don't necessarily agree with it. But ethically, if change isn't real, it means that there are universal truths. So a lot of the conversation in ethics today deals with interacting with the various subjective lenses that people bring to a given situation and informs how they do moral reasoning. Well, if nothing changes, then the subjective context isn't actually uh, a factor in the conversation. And all we have to do is know the universal truths, uh, which would be called deontology, 
And now we all know what to do with ethics. So uh, you just have to discover what those are, and then you'll be able to live by them. And that sounds a lot better than, hey, we're never going to fully arrive. The best we can do is get a little bit closer. Um, so I kind of like that idea. I disagree with you know where it lands. Um, and I still think there's a way to get there ethically without having to make this case about change. But I just hope you're starting to see... Um, that their reasoning for thinking this way was not just they were irrational and stupid. Um, there's a certain uncertainty that we live within. And if change is an illusion, you have less to worry about. I understand why they would want to go there. But I think we can come to the conclusion that these are a little bit fallacious with good intentions, right? Now, let's bring up another pre-Socratic philosopher, who one I actually really like this this person, and it's Heraclitus. Heraclitus was one of the first philosophers, at least in written history, to make a case that change is the fundamental reality. And it's worth noting, uh, maybe the reason that Heraclitus came to a different conclusion than some of his contemporaries is because uh, Heraclitus was influenced by the Persians, who come from an Eastern perspective. So maybe, maybe, that's, uh, maybe that's how that all came about. Now, Heraclitus comes to this conclusion by observing the world. And to some of those other philosophers we just mentioned, that, that, that's fallible. But what he made a claim was, you cannot step into the same river twice. I want you to think about that. You can't step into the same river twice. This would have been very disconcerting for people. The claim is that reality is a constellation of processes. So the world is not just made out of material stuff that's timeless and eternal and unchanging. The world is actually composed of process and change of substance, which creates the world then as we know it. So the, the modern ideas of phenomenology, like how your experience of the world creates the world as it is, or the philosophy of idealism, or the conversations on consciousness and meaning, those are all based on this idea of process that actively creates the world as it is. Heraclitus was saying this a long time ago. This also meant for Heraclitus that certainty is impossible. Because change is constantly creating uh, new realities that we then have to grasp. What is really important in this philosophical debate is that if change is the fundamental reality, then determinism is not possible. And whether you come from a scientific approach and you, you, know, you work with something along the lines of simulation theory or a theological approach and you think about uh, sovereignty and uh, predestination, that kind of determinism, uh, those can't be the case because of change and your experience adding to that change is the reality of the world, then you have agency. And if you have agency, then determinism can't be a thing. Now, as philosophy moves on, this conversation shifts, and it becomes less about a cosmological argument. So, what is the, uh, the, the, the nature and origin of the universe? And it becomes an ontological argument, which is, what is existence, and what is real, and what is true? What is the nature of reality? So, where people like Parmenides, or Empedocles, or even Heraclitus are working with origins and what the world is made out of and how that came into being, 
the conversation as uh, we move into, you know, enlightenment philosophy and modern philosophy became on how does the world actively work? And the big conversation in philosophy that came is about the nature of humans and determinism versus free will. And this is still a, a hugely debated topic. If nothing changes, then everything is determined. And again, you, you have no agency. It's just a simulation which you experience. But if you have free will, then change has to be real because you have some agency and you affect things. The best way this is articulated in what's, is in what's called process philosophy, that reality arises in various substances becoming. So it's not determined. Reality, therefore, is a complex integration and destruction of occasions and experience. It's all of these things interacting together to create the world as we know it. And so what process philosophy, or, or sometimes it's called process ontology or process theology, what it says is that the fundamental nature of existence is a process. Everything is influencing everything else to constantly create the world as it is. So let's think about what Heraclitus meant about the river. So you have weathering occurring. So geology and landscapes are being transformed. And then you have erosion, which is when that transformed landscape and geological features actually move. So literally, the river is different in every single moment. The shape is just a tad different. The composition is different. And then the movement is different. But then you also have that the molecules of water are always different. So when you look at a river, you see certain water molecules, then they move. And then you're looking at absolutely different water molecules in the next moment. And this is the same about all landscapes, right? The blades of grass outside of your window they are always different, whether they've grown or changed, or maybe it's a new blade of grass after some time. Uh, same with trees, same with plants, same with the air. Like it's constantly different. It's starting to seem, the more, the more you look at the world, that consistency is an illusion, which remember, this is why those, especially pre-Socratic philosophers and Plato and Aristotle all said that uh, our empirical observations are fallible, so they could negate that point. But let's keep looking at this practically. What about culture? Does culture change? Well, in fact, culture is very similar to the river. It's constantly changing. And you can think of a variety of examples just think about the handshake. The handshake right now is a way to formally greet somebody. Before, it was a way to show that you didn't have a weapon. Culture changed. The idea that culture and sociology is consistent also seems to be an illusion. And, and the larger historical movement of culture just seems to be a constant change. This is why we look at the, the scientific explanations of some of the pre-Socratic philosophers and we're like, wow, they were way off because things have changed since then. But what about biologically, right? We could look at your uh, intrinsic preferences or like different kinds of food or taste, or uh, we could look at your lifestyle and how you live, the routines through each day, the kind of things you do with your body. We could look at your clothes, like, do you wear the same clothes that you did when you were five? I, I hope not. Those things are constantly changing. And if we look at the atomic level, which 
let's be honest, I'm, I'm not much of a scientist, but from the reports I understand, you're made up of 7 billion billion atoms, and they change. You lose 300 million cells every minute. Every month, your skin is a completely different set of skin. Every seven years, approximately, the composition of your body has atomically changed so much that it's a different body, technically. We're constantly changing. And so when we ask this question, can we change? Well, the debate in philosophy exists, though it also seems to be quite accepted practically. And so I'm interested in, as we look at the world, what's going on with change? Like, let's look at one more, psychologically. And and this from a uh, more practical perspective, psychologically is change possible? Because some things don't change, right? Like you have an unchanging center, right? This abstract part of your existence and consciousness that is the same over time. Maybe you call this personality or identity, but there's right some sort of consistent characterization or perspective that stays the same. Well, no. <laughs> In fact, it, it may stay relatively the same, but even that changes. The idea that you have a stable, unchanging, undeveloping center with no malleability doesn't seem likely. And even if it's just in small ways, you might not be completely different, but at the least, you're constantly evolving. There was a study done by a psychologist, Lee Ross from Stanford, where he looks at you know these traits of our lives and our identities that seem stable and consistent. And he came up with a theory called the power of situation, that there are these situations where things appear consistent, but really what's happening is you have certain traits that are dominant. They still change. And when you enter into different situations, we find that your identity will move or weave or web or evolve a little bit depending on the situation you're in. So it's not this static, absolute, unchanging center. It just depends on your context. Uh, Or we could look at the famous Milgram study in 1963, where very just common individuals were willing to commit violent acts, right? So they're they're told to, to press this zap that you know, purportedly goes to an individual that they couldn't see, but they could hear the person scream. And, you know, there was not actually any electrical shocks being given, but they were willing to do this because an authority figure told them to. And this study, many things were learned from the study, but one of them was that different circumstances determine different actions, even if it betrays our central identity. All of these people said they would never kill somebody. Well, by the end, they were, they were told that, hey, you're going to give this level of shock and this will be lethal. And they did it. What about memories? Because, yeah, okay, your identity, the way you think, lifestyle, all of that. Yeah, okay, get with that. We, we change that. What about your memories? Because that's something that we might be a little less likely to let go of. But even your memories are malleable. In fact, this one's even more obvious. There, there's a reason that eyewitness testimony doesn't carry that much weight. Because not only do we not remember things exactly as they happen, the further we get from a memory, 
the more unassembled it becomes in our brains. And another part that kind of puts us off is every time you remember something, your recall actually corrupts it because it gets influenced by uh, your current situation. You start changing the memories a little bit. And if you fail to consistently encode a memory, yeah, you can even lose it. And I just give you all of these examples to hopefully make a case that change is built into the fabric of existence. Nothing appears to be static. See, we have this illusion of continuity and sameness, and we yearn for it, and I understand why. But it may be that we are not thinking rightly about ourselves and not thinking rightly about change. And this illusion, it might be holding us back. Because how it is right now, if process uh, philosophy is correct, how it is is not how it will be. And if we don't pay attention, we're going to miss possibilities that can move us closer to that uh, destination, that goal for what it means to be a human being. And we're going to become victims of our biography. But it doesn't have to be this way. And change makes it so. Change makes it so that all is possible. Consider the marshmallow test that happened, um, I think it was 1968. What the situation was, uh, a kid would be shown a marshmallow and the person would say, I'm going to leave the room, uh, don't eat this, and if I come back and it's still there, I'll give you two marshmallows. Well, leave the room and the kids would eat it. And uh, there's a lot of problems with this study, especially uh, the, the, the cultural differentiation and uh, the sociological situation of some of the kids Like, made sense that they ate the marshmallow. But what I find really interesting about this study is that we found that children responded differently in different situations because later, uh, at another time, some of the same children were put through the test again and they didn't eat the marshmallow. Like a child was able to reinterpret their actions. They could change. That offers a possibility. Change doesn't have to be a bad thing. And if change is possible, you know, on one hand, it's scary because we crave predictability and stability. And change means that the world has anything but predictable and stable. But if change is possible, it might also be beautiful because that means that the story of our lives and of the world is still being written. And just look at psychology and uh, sort of therapeutic counseling. When we see people overcome trauma and they adapt and they improve, it's hard to make a case that change isn't possible. But here's what needs to be said. Once you know that there is change, it does mean that it's daunting because you have to decide and you have a responsibility for how the world is going to continue. See, I think what happened was I asked the wrong question because we asked, is change possible? Can we change? And I don't think that's the right question. I think the real question is, how will you change? So that's it for this episode. And what I want to do next time is I want to see what are the ramifications of this take on change? What does it mean for us 
if change is the reality of the world that we live in, and then we'll be able to see how should we change and what do we actually do with this. Feel free to go to tylerkleberger.com if you want to see more about becoming human and if you want to explore some of the other content that's put out. Also, as always, feel free to contact me and I'd be happy to continue the conversation. But for now, keep pondering the potential reality of change because we have a lot to wade through to see how we can change well. See you next time.